1973, a, a book was released which many consider, if not the most important book of the 20th century, the most important Christian book of the 20th century, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. It, it sold, even up, up to this point, over a million copies in North America. And in 2006, Christianity Today listed it as fifth on their list of the top 50 books that have shaped evangelicals. Now, in that book, Packer argues that the Bible uses four main analogies to describe this pursuit of the knowledge of God. The first analogy he uses is, or the Bible uses, is the manner of a, a son coming to know his father. The second analogy that the Bible uses that's so prevalent is a, a wife coming to know her, her bridegroom, her husband. A, a third analogy is a, of a servant coming to know his king. And then fourth, a sheep coming to know its shepherd. And Packer points out that all four analogies points to a relation in which the, the knower, that's us, looks up. So we, we look up to the one known, first and foremost, by grace, through the revealed word of God, and then the one who is known comes to us and takes responsibility for our welfare. That's the relationship of this knowing him and his taking responsibility of our welfare. Well, there's so much could be said about that book, but for our time, um, our present text is one of the central texts behind the writing of Packer's book. Jeremiah chapter 9. The reality is that the only alternative to the pursuit of the knowledge of God is idolatry. That's Packer's argument. And that is certainly what Jeremiah is dealing with in our text. For Jeremiah, now our culture doesn't like this, but for Jeremiah, life is a binary choice. We don't like binary today. I don't know if y'all have noticed that. But for Jeremiah, life is a binary choice. That is, the pursuit of the knowledge of God or idolatry. There's no gray there. You're pursuing the knowledge of the true and living God or you're choosing a path of idolatry. And idolatry is the core issue for Israel. That's why the first commandment is what? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that idolatry manifests itself in various means. Religious ritualism is a big problem that we've seen in the book of Jeremiah. Child sacrifice, where they're manipulating the false gods to propitiate them, to get them to do what they want the gods to do for them. Uh, we've seen the embrace of false prophets who preach peace, peace, when there is no priest. Uh, we have seen deceit. Deceit is a big problem uh, in this, this country. And we've also seen um, so many other things like injustice. Injustice for those that they were called to care, take care of, like the widows, the orphans, and the outsiders. And as a result, we saw last time, verse 11, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins 
a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Now, with that, verse 12, where we pick up questions, where whether anyone is wise enough to understand why God's anger with Judah is so violent. It shocks us if, if, we're, if we're honest about it. And that brings us to verse 12. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? Understand what? The, the, the judgment that's going to fall on unrepentant Judah. To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? Now, it's generally impossible to understand why calamity occurs. So when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, everybody had their assessments. Well, New Orleans happens to be a, a wicked city. Well, there's righteous people in New Orleans as well. And there's wicked people in Louisville. We've never had Katrina hit us. So it, it's generally impossible to understand why calamity occurs. In this case, the answer is clear. Look with me in verse 13. And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. So they were catechized by their fathers, but not in the law of God. They were catechized by their fathers in idolatry, in the worship of Baal. There's only two choices. It's the way of the knowledge of God or idolatry. We need to keep that in mind. Even if we're not explicitly teaching our kids the doctrine of Baal. If we're not teaching them about the true and living God, we're teaching them to walk in the way of idolatry. And they learned this from their fathers. So as a people, we saw this when we studied Exodus. They agreed to obey the Lord God at Mount Sinai. This covenant was made, we know, as, as, the, as the Mosaic Covenant. And instead, right out of the chute, they demonstrated a history of stubborn rebellion. And so generation after generation worships the Baals, the Canaanite God, the supreme Canaanite God, in spite of repeated warnings. So the question isn't, what has Judah done to deserve this? The question is, what have they not done? They're creative, Jeremiah says, in their wickedness. They've even forgotten how to blush. And so their conduct raises a question that every generation needs to ask. Why do people turn away from the living God to worship false gods, gods that can give no help because the gods are helpless? Why do we do that? It, it, it's the height of insanity. We saw it this morning, even... Uh, with Abner, who knew that God had promised David the kingdom. Instead, he chose his own kingdom with Ishbosheth. And as a result, of a bitter future is in store for a people who have forsaken God's laws. Verse 15. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed this people with bitter food. Uh, if you have the King James, if, if Al was with us tonight, he would see that in the King James, that's the word wormwood, uh, which was a shrub with a fruit that tastes extremely bitter. So I will feed these people with wormwood, with bitter food, and give them poisonous water to drink. And so their punishment's going to be like poisonous water that would also include exile. Verse 16, I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Of course, we know that the exile occurred in three uh, stages. The first in 605, the second in 597, and the third and most devastating exile occurred in 586, where they were taken some 500 miles in, into Babylon. And that had been promised to them. All the way back, if you look uh, in places like Leviticus 26.33 or Deuteronomy uh, 28. Uh, 36, Moses had warned that would happen if the people abandoned the Lord in idolatry. And now, when death and calamity comes to a community or to a family, it was, it was customary in the ancient Near East to call for professional warners, mourners. I always think about good times and, and weeping Wanda here. But, they, they would, they, but that's how it was in the ancient East. It's still how it is in, in many places in Africa. In fact, I was reading a, an African commentary on this text, and it's still very common in Africa to hire professional mourners to come and grieve, to, to demonstrate um, the heinousness of the, of the situation. Look with me in verse 17. Thus, now, this, this begins a poem, and... That, that poem is going to take you all the way from 17 to 22, and it's a poem about death. So it's a dark poem, and it's a reminder that Judah's funeral was near. Now notice verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come, those who are skillful in mourning. And then he says, Let them make haste and raise a welling over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. So mourning begets warning. Maybe you've been around people and you didn't think you were going to cry and then that person begins to weep and all of a sudden you're weeping over things that you don't normally, ordinarily reap over, uh, weep over. So that our eyes may run down with tears. He, he is saying you're not weeping over your sin. So we got to hire professionals to grieve over your sin so that you'll finally start grieving over your sin. Verse 19, for a sound of welling is heard from Zion. How we are ruined, we are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. And so widespread would be this death, and widespread would be the ruin in the land. There, there wouldn't be enough professional mourners. Uh, and now, interestingly, remember how uh, the chapter began with, and it was hard to distinguish in chapter 9, verse 1, whether this was Jeremiah's tears 
are the Lord's tears. And I tend to think that's intentional. That Jeremiah being the representative, uh, the ambassador of the Lord, it's hard to distinguish. But he says, oh, that my head were waters, verse 1, and my, mountain, my, my uh, eyes a fountain of tears. And then in, in verse 10, I will take up weeping and welling for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through. So you, you already have weeping here. But now the extent of the tragedy calls for a whole troop, a whole army of, of, of wellers. And when I think about this, and, and I see what's going on in our culture, and I'm not optimistic about our culture, but I'm very hopeful, if, if, if you understand the tension here. I'm not optimistic that the culture is going to get better. I believe it's going to get worse. But I'm hopeful because our hope is seated at the right hand of God. And, and, and he cannot and will never be dethroned. And so our hope is not in our culture getting better, though I would love to see our culture turn around. I would love to see a, a great awakening like we saw in the 1740s. Well, I wasn't there, but some, some of you may have been there. But, uh, <laughs> but I would love to see that, and God can do that. He has done that before. In the 1740s, wickedness was prevailing, and God just sovereignly brought a, an awakening. He could do that again. But even if he does not do that, we are very hopeful as Christians because, as Peter says, we have a, a living hope. But having said that, I think this text teaches us that we as believers need to rediscover the lost art of mourning, the lost art of lamentation. We need to teach our children not just to hate sin so that they're scoffing at it, but to grieve over it. So, for instance, you're driving to church, and, and I've had this asked to me, Dad, how come those people are, are jogging or, or they're, they're walking their dog or they're, they're throwing a ball, and, and they're not going to church? Instead of sitting in the judgment seat on those people, say to your children, that's sad, isn't it? It's really sad. They don't know. They don't understand that God has given us a day to gather as the people of God. They don't love God and they don't love the people of God. And so we need to, rather than judge them, we need to mourn over that, that situation. And, and we see here that, that fathers and mothers have a vital responsibility in, in what they teach their children, what children are being taught. And we need to learn to grieve over these things. We see it here. Jeremiah says, that's your problem. You're not grieving over your sin. You take it too lightly. Well, notice in verse 20. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters a lament. And each to her neighbor a dirge. And so to meet the demands, and the, the, the judgment is going to be so widespread... Those who are already skilled at mourning need to be discipling others, teaching their daughters how to wail. That's what he's saying here. For death, this is remarkable imagery. Death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces. What's that telling us? Not even the kings are immune to the curse 
not even the celebrities, not even the wealthy, will be untouched by this judgment, by death. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. And so Jeremiah here is using the figure of death, climbing through windows to show them there's no escape from what's coming. And we're still, death, we're going to see here in verse 22, treats the dead like garbage. Verse 22, speak, thus declares the Lord. The dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. They won't even receive a proper burial. Why? Because the death count will be so great, and those who survive are going to be taken into captivity. There'll be no one there to even bury them. It's going to be devastating. Now, that brings us to a, a massive change in this passage. And so the theme here changes from indictments of sin and the promise of coming judgment to a call to seek what really matters. Remember, this would have been spoken to the original audience, but this is written for a future audience. Remember that. It's written to a, a future audience after the fact. What do you do when this kind of thing is taking place? That brings us to the heart of this passage. And this is the section that inspired J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. So what he's about to do, Jeremiah is going to lay out two contrasting ways of life. It is binary. There's no gray here. There's two ways of life. And he's going to give you two triads to think about. One way of life described by one triad. Another way of life described by another triad. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. And when he says boast here, he's talking about everything from where you find your identity to where you pursue, the, the things you pursue in life as ultimate. That's what he's talking about here. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And so wisdom, strength, and, and wealth are the values that most naturally aspire to. In your natural state, it's one of these three areas or perhaps all three of these areas that we naturally aspire to. And he's offering an alternative, one that God esteems. Now, contextually, these three things have already been seen. 
So for instance, look in verse 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Flip over to chapter 8. Just a, one page, a couple of pages. Chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? There it's referring to those who claim to be wise in the law of God, but they're false prophets. And so wisdom has already uh, been addressed there. Uh, so has might. Look over in verse 14 of chapter 8. Why do we sit still, gather together? Let us go into the fortified cities. Israel believed that they were impenetrable because of their fortified cities. Jeremiah says, let not the mighty man glory in his might. And then you see, let not the rich man boast in his riches. If you again look in chapter 8, verse 10. Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Of course, I think Paul is meditating on this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he says, the foolishness of God is wiser than than man's wisdom. And so as wise as we may perceive ourselves to be, God is the author of wisdom. And then when you think about strength, when we think of strength today, uh, I tend to think about the, the five-star athlete. They, they, they appear as if they're untouchable. I just saw a do documentary this week on Walter Payton. Um, Tim... So I watched it so I could have better conversations with Tim Turk and Rita. And at one time, he would run these hills, and many consider him the hot, most highly conditioned athlete who has ever played in the NFL. Not only was he the most highly conditioned athlete, he would, he would not get tired. They said if, when he came into camp, he would get out of shape because his, his training was so difficult. And... Comparatively speaking, you know, training camp, as hard as it is, was easier than what he did. And yet, he retires in 86. 1999, he dies of liver failure. Had a disease of the liver. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. How about Muhammad Ali? Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. Do y'all remember the 1996 Olympics? He couldn't even pick up the torch. The, the, the greatest boxer of all time could barely walk up onto the stage and he couldn't pick up the, uh, the torch. And then when you think about those who, who glory in their wealth, who glory in their riches, you can't help but remember the parable of the rich fool who built all of these barns to accommodate all of his material things. And then this is the one place in Scripture where God personally calls a man a fool. He says, fool... This night, your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Again, binary. It's laying up treasure for yourself. It's the way of idolatry. Are those who are rich towards God, the knowledge of God. It's very binary for these people. And so this is a very important passage. These verses put life in its proper perspective. When all the non-essentials are laid aside, and we need to keep that in mind, there are non-essentials in church life. There are essentials, and then there are non-essentials. And when all the non-essentials are laid aside, the only right basis for boasting is that a person knows and understands the Lord. Because nothing else apart from this has lasting value. And that our children know the Lord. And they are pursuing the knowledge of the Lord. And that our friends and our neighbors know the Lord. And they are pursuing the knowledge of the Lord. That's why I love... um, what the woods are doing with those who come into our country. They, they are pursuing these people that they might know the true and living God. And, and, and that is what Jeremiah is saying is the, the, the pathway to life. And whoever has that knowledge understands that the Lord exercises, notice here, kindness. It's interesting there. That he practices kindness or steadfast love. Some translations read kindness. It's hesed, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight. If we could ask the Lord any question and hear an audible voice... And the the text here is no less revelatory than an audible voice. In fact, it's the more sure word, Peter tells us, because voices can play tricks on us. Uh, He says that the word is more certain than even what happened at the Mount Transfiguration. But if we were to hear him say, one question we would ask him is, what do you delight in? We may not ask it that way, but that would be the question they would ask. We don't have to ask, though. He says, in these things I delight, declares the Lord, Love, justice, and righteousness. Steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. These three terms express the heart of the Hebrew religion. But for those who don't get that, notice how the text closes. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt. I would have expected him to say Judah first. He says Egypt first. Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Now this would have been an insult and the final insult to self-righteous people. And that's who they were. Think about this. He's already said that Israel's trust in the temple was a lie. Listen to chapter 7, verse 4. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. He says, you're trusting in the temple? It's a lie. You have deceived yourself. So he's gone after their temple. 
He's also gone after their law. If you look in chapter 8, we just read this. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? He's saying you claim the law of the Lord, but you don't know what's in there. And if you know what's in there, you're not doing anything about it. So he's gone after two of the realities, the institutions that Judah found their identity in. The temple and the law. And now the trifecta. Circumcision. He's going after circumcision. He says, The days are coming when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Now, circumcision was widely practiced in the ancient Near East. Israel was not the only nation who observed uh, circumcision. Now, what was unique about the other nations, it was generally just the priest who were circumcised. And Israel democratizes that. He, uh, the, Israel has all of the baby boys circumcised. as if to say these are priests before God. And so, but the only two nations that I'm aware of that, would, that did not practice circumcision that we read about in Scripture were the Philistines and the Babylonians. All the other nations observed circumcision. And yet, the circumcised yet uncircumcised that Jeremiah lumps Judah with is remarkable. You think he would have at least given them the first um, in the list, but he just drops their name right there between Egypt and Edom. What do you think he's doing that? I think he's saying there's really no difference between you. And these pagan nations. In light of your unbelief. In light of your apostasy. You're no different. You're not set apart. Um, And so if you'll remember circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. In Exodus 17. Genesis 17 rather. And so but it was never given to as a as a way to earn favor with God. It was just a covenant sign to set them apart as the people of God, just like baptism. Baptism is not saving. It's a covenant sign, a a new covenant sign. Well, circumcision was never considered to be uh, a, a step to curry favor with God. If that were the case, then the pagan nations would have all had favor with God because they, outside of the Philistines and the Babylonians, observed circumcision. So when God gave the command here for circumcision to Abraham, the ritual was intended to identify him and his descendants as the people of God, as the people through whom the seed that would bring blessing to the nations would come. All right? And so circumcision only in the flesh was no protection from judgment. And that's why three times, three times in the New Testament, Galatians 5, verse 6, Galatians 6, 15, and 1 Corinthians 7, 19, Paul says, circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything. Nothing when it comes to currying favor with God. In in, in Chapter 5, verse 6 of Galatians, he says, but faith working through love is everything. In Galatians 6, 15, new creation is everything. 
1 Corinthians 7, 19, keeping the commandments of God is everything. And so circumcision in the flesh had deceived these people into thinking that God was with them. And so just like Paul made it clear that you have Israelites who are physically circumcised, but they're not true Jews, you have those who were circumcised in heart, the circumcision of the heart. That's what the circumcision sign was to indicate, those who would be circumcised in heart. So let's close this up. For the, the benefit of those who would read this book after the judgments have fallen, and by the time this book was compiled, the judgments had fallen. What benefit would this section have for those who read this after the judgments have fallen? It's too late at that point. Well, I think that the reality of what he's after here is that he wants to use this section, like I said last time, as a kind of vaccination. For those who are in exile, and Israel would remain in exile, even after they, even after they returned to, to, to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple, the glory of the Lord did not return. So they are there in proximity geographically, but they're still in exile spiritually. So this would have been a word to them. It's also a word to us. And what this text is telling us is that there are two choices in life. There's only two. It is a binary choice to invest your life in the pursuit of the knowledge of God or to invest your life in an idolatrous pursuit that will ultimately bring judgment on your life. But here's the question. Following a chapter with judgment and tears, how can we even think about using the language of steadfast love, justice, and righteousness? Of course, we we understand the latter two, justice and righteousness, uh, in light of the fact that Israel, Judah, was unrepentant. But how about this word, steadfast love? Does anybody have a translation, kindness? Kindness there. Um, there's a semantic range here. So how can you use this word steadfast love in light of this whole section about judgment? Well, that is a very important question. But the word here, if you'll notice, when he says the Lord who practices steadfast love, that word is hesed. I've given you that word before. If you were to spell it in English, H-E-S-E-D. It's one of the most important words in the Old Testament. It's used over, two, I think, 214 times in the Old Testament. And what that word means is God's commitment to his covenant promise. God's commitment to his covenant promise. Now, which covenant? <laughs> well, he, he, he has a promise that he made to Abraham. He also has a promise that he made to the people of God through Moses. Um, the one he made to Abraham, you will be a blessing to the nations. 
to the, to the, to the people under Moses, he said, you must obey me or the judgment's going to fall. And so, so he's promising in some way that there will be a people who receive blessing and become a conduit of blessing, and yet he's going to bring judgment on the guilty. Well, what if everyone's guilty? What do you do there? In fact, in Exodus 34, when Moses says, show me your way, show me your glory, God preaches a sermon about himself where he says, I am the Lord who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means clears the guilty. So how can he forgive and yet at the same time judge the guilty? There's a tension that develops right there in Exodus 34. And this word, covenantal faithfulness, is the key to answering that tension. The hesed of God. Now keep in mind, God's purpose in and through the nation of Israel was to be a blessing to the nations. We, in fact, we saw it, I think, I think it's back in chapter 4, where we read that, verses 1 and 2, where it says... If you return, O Israel, to me, you shall return. If you remove your detestable things and do not waver, if you swear as the Lord lives in truth and justice and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. So there he is. He's picking up the promise of Abraham that if you will obey, that's the Mosaic covenant, then the Abrahamic covenant is going to find its fulfillment where you will be a conduit of blessing to the nations. And so all of the dealings that God has with Israel from their redemption out of Egypt to their judgment in exile to their restoration was geared towards that universal saving mission. And so when God dropped the hammer on Israel, the nations could say, God does judge sin. He judged his people. He judged them to the point of sending them out of their, their country and destroying their temple to the point where they don't even have a king. God must be just. And then when God restored Israel, when God redeemed Israel, renewed them back into the land, the nations were to say, God is a redeeming God. He judges sin. He also redeems. And ultimately, it's only in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ that can sufficiently contain these truths simultaneously. So again, let me review. What are the truths? That God judges sin and he forgives sinners. How can he do that? Well, in the cross... God signals that every sin will be judged. No sinner will get out of this without judgment. God is just. It's one of those three words there, justice. All right? And so the cross of Jesus is the supreme exile. Because on the cross, Jesus was cut out of the land of the living. Isaiah 53 verse 8. So we have the supreme exile in Jesus where God's justice is revealed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But he didn't say, Jesus did not stay in exile. Jesus did not stay under judgment. He would be raised from the dead in the ultimate exodus. The resurrection is the ultimate exodus. This is the Lord's kindness, his steadfast love. And so the cross represents his justice. The resurrection represents his steadfast love. And both the cross and the resurrection together drive home the righteousness of God. There's those three terms. And so in other words, what I'm saying is the knowledge of God is supremely revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, God demonstrates his steadfast love. He demonstrates his justice. He demonstrates his righteousness. God is just to, to, to judge sinners. And he is gracious to justify those who would trust in his son. And that's the God we're called to know. And hence, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, to close out that chapter, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us our wisdom from God. That is, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for text, even on judgment, that teach us about your nature, about your perfections that we know supremely in your Son. Lord, these are deep waters, and they're dark waters, because we continue to read about rebellion. We continue to read about judgment. And yet, Lord, we recognize without an understanding of these realities... There's no making sense of the cross. There's no celebrating the cross because in these judgments, we see what we deserve. But in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, we see your grace on our sin. We see your grace on us. We pray that these texts would continue to stir us to love you more and to know you better in the face of your son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.